if you look at the, you know, the most recent camps that UNHCR opened, this was kind of 60 years of experience in perfection. And they're actually not perfection. They're a, a modernist vision of hell. Probably the worst trade deal ever agreed yeah, to. Die. Breaking news here, stocks all around the world are tanking because of the crisis on Wall Street. Hallo Leute, ich bin Andreas Sator und ihr hört meinen Podcast Nachfrage. In ihm gibt es alle meine Interviews, die ich für den Standard mache, ungeschnitten und in voller Länge. Dieses Mal ist Paul Collier zu Gast, er ist einer der klügsten Ökonomen, wenn es um Afrika geht und warum es immer noch so viele arme Länder auf der Welt gibt. Bevor ich euch aber erzähle, worum es heute geht, wenn euch der Podcast gefällt, würde ich mich freuen, wenn ihr ihn abonniert. Das geht ganz einfach am Handy mit einer Gratis-Podcast-App. Wenn ihr ihn besonders mögt, teilt ihn bitte mit euren Freunden oder schreibt meinen Review auf iTunes. Das hilft mir, dass der Podcast ein bisschen bekannter wird. Collier ist ein ziemlich interessanter Denker. Er war fünf Jahre lang Chefökonom der Weltbank ist jetzt Professor in Oxford und dort Direktor des Zentrums für afrikanische Ökonomien. Aber er ist nicht nur akademisch interessant, sondern hat auch politischen Einfluss. Letzte Woche war er in Berlin als Berater in der deutschen Regierung und entwirft dort unter anderem mit der Bundeskanzlerin Angela Merkel diese Initiative für Afrika, wo es um Entwicklungspolitik geht. Am Donnerstag war er in Wien und da hat er am Abend auch den Außenminister Sebastian Kurz getroffen. Die Vorschläge vom Kurz passen auch ziemlich gut zu dem, was der Collier so von sich gibt. Wir haben eigentlich das ganze Interview lang über seine Idee geredet, die Flüchtlingskrise zu lösen. Der Collier will, dass kaum mehr Flüchtlinge nach Europa kommen. Viel besser ist es, sagt er, wenn wir in den Ländern, wo viele sind, also zum Beispiel in Jordanien, in der Türkei oder im Libanon, Jobs schaffen. Diese Jobs sollen geschaffen werden, indem wir Milliardensubventionen an europäische Firmen ausgeben, die dann dort investieren. Also zum Beispiel kann man sich das so vorstellen, wir geben BMW 20 Millionen Euro, damit sie ein Werk im Libanon aufbauen. Es ist ein ziemlich ambitionierter Plan, den Collier da hat. Dass ich ein bisschen skeptisch bin, werdet ihr, glaube ich, an meinen Nachfragen merken. Jedenfalls ist er einer der schlauesten Ökonomen, die es gibt und alleine deshalb ist es mehr spannend, ihm zuzuhören. Er will seinen Vorschlag übrigens auch auf die Entwicklungspolitik allgemein ausweiten. Also nicht nur dem Libanon oder der Türkei soll unter die Arme gegriffen werden, sondern alle armen Länder sollen so Förderungen an Firmen bekommen, damit dort Jobs geschaffen werden und investiert wird. Ich habe es sehr, sehr interessant gefunden. Ich hoffe, euch geht es genauso. Viel Spaß beim Hören. Thank you very much for taking the time, Paul. You're welcome. I'd like to start with uh, a question on your new book. You seem very upset about how the world deals with refugees. Why? Uh, and so should anybody be who actually looks at how we've been dealing with refugees. Uh, it's been a moral disgrace that's gone on for 60 years. Um, the, uh, the number of refugees has gone up and up, um, 
and yet our policy to deal with them is stuck in the late 1940s. Uh, and that policy has been um, what was appropriate in 1948, but is an insult now. That policy is a purely humanitarian response of provide free food and free shelter. Free food, free accommodation for 20 million people year after year after year. And that is both an insulting policy and a desperately foolish policy. It's hugely expensive and it shreds refugees of dignity. Can I jump in for a second? Um, uh, most people, when they, when they think about the refugees, they think about the one million that came to Europe in 2015, or the one and a half million. So when you talk about 20 million, that, uh, 20 million people, refugees, that we provide with free food and shelter, what refugees are you talking about? Where do they live and where? Well, this, the tiny numbers of people who came to Europe are at the most the tip of an iceberg. Right? They're not the refugee problem. What we did didn't address the refugee problem. Refugees from around the world are themselves a subgroup of the real problem, which is displacement. Displacement from state failure. And around the world, periodically, some states collapse, either into disorder, insecurity, violence, or into famine. Uh, and as a result, millions of people find that their homes become unlivable. And they flee from that unlivable space. That's displacement. There are about 65 million displaced people in the world today. Again, pretty well a, a, a post-1945 high. Right? So that's the fundamental problem. Some of those displaced, globally a minority, stagger across the nearest border and become refugees. Right? Refugees is just a legal term for those displaced people who've staggered across an international border. And then where are these 20 million? So, where did people go? Where would you go if you're a refugee? You, you stagger across a border to the nearest place to home. Because you're going with your family and most likely you're actually hoping that you'll be able to go back. That's the hope of most refugees. You want to go back home. You didn't leave your home thinking, oh yummy, I could get to Vienna. You left your home because you were scared to death or because you couldn't feed your family. Something's drastically wrong in this society. You hope that won't last, but it's here now, and so I've got out. And so I stagger across the border into somewhere that is a neighboring country that's safe. It's a haven. And most of the refugees in the world are concentrated in 10 haven countries. Now, none of those haven countries are in Europe. All of them are pretty poor. Their only common characteristic is that they're relatively safe places in very disturbed neighborhoods. 
for example, so, Lebanon, Turkey, Iran. So the Syrian refugees have gone to Turkey, to Jordan, to Lebanon. That's where the Syrian refugees are, overwhelmingly. Um, there are vast pools of refugees in Kenya, from Somalia, in Ethiopia, from South Sudan and Eritrea, in Uganda, in Pakistan, in Iran. You know? These are the places that are providing safe haven for refugees. And um, what we need is a policy that helps these haven countries to bring, to restore dignity to these people, to the refugees. And what the, the most elementary part of dignity is that people are trying to restore some semblance of normality in their lives, and the first thing they want is a degree of autonomy. Basically means they need to be able to earn a living so that they can feed themselves and their family, hold their family together. Um, and uh, that's why, globally, pretty well 90% of refugees ignore the UN HCR system of free food, free shelter, camps. That's been the business model of the humanitarian refugee agencies ever since the 1950s. And it's an insulting and expensive model, which is totally non-strategic. At last, thanks to the fuss that Alex Betts and I have made, Alex Betts, the director of the Refugee Studies Center in Oxford, the world's leading research center on refugees, thanks to the fuss we've made, there's actually international action on this. So the World Bank, which for 60 years did nothing on refugees, has now committed $2 billion of international aid money to help the haven countries where the refugees are and to bring work both to the refugees in those countries and, of course, to help locals. Alex and I got involved because the government of Jordan brought us in to say, help. We've got a million refugees from Syria. Nobody's helping us. What should we do? And we looked around, and we saw that Jordan was a country with a lot of economic opportunities. But the Syrian refugees were not allowed to work. And so we, we pitched to the, the government of Jordan, if you let these refugees work, and we encourage the, always the, the rich countries' governments and organizations like the World Bank to actually bring firms in that will bring jobs, not only for the refugees, but, but, but for Jordanians, would that be an acceptable deal? And the Jordanian government thought about it, and they said, yeah. So they, they said, we will create up to 200,000 work permits to permit refugees to work, as long as the jobs come in that share the jobs between refugees and Jordanians. The sort of deal they were thinking of was 70 jobs for refugees, 30 jobs for Jordanians, you know, that sort of balance. So where are we in this process now? Um, 
the, uh, the, the, the World Bank has put serious money into Jordan to do that. Um, and firms are now starting to go. Um, so far, the Jordanians, I think, have issued 38,000 new work permits. Um, so it's happening. Right? But the test, the real leap is to think not what's happened in the few months since we got this established, but suppose this had been actually standard international policy for the last 20 years. Then, when a country melts down and a refugee situation emerges, then there's already an automatic response of public money to their even countries and international firms knowing this is the opportunity for us to look good by creating jobs, not by doing corporate social responsibility and sending a load of blankets, but by doing our core job in places that we never thought of going to. And so that's the, that's the, the real challenge. If we could get this established as the norm, um, then we could get change. Um, privately, all the senior UNHCR staff we've talked to are cheering us on. The public official response of UNHCR has been indignantly to say, we're not a jobs agency, which is true. But that's their problem, because what refugees most need is just that, a jobs agency that generates jobs for them. But if we take uh, Jordan as an example with, I don't know how many people, Jordan has eight or nine million or something like that? The population, yeah. Yeah, something like that. It's, uh, isn't it very hard for, for Jordan to create one million additional jobs? On its own, yes. But if international firms come in, this is making globalization work for the people who need it most. Yeah? Um, Jordan has um, already got four, 40 industrial zones. It has one huge empty industrial zone right by the biggest camp, Zadri. That's what gave us the idea in the first place. Um, Jordan's problem when we started was that Jordan didn't have access to European Union markets. There were trade restrictions imposed by Europe against Jordan. We went to Brussels, argued the case. The European Commission lifted them. So they've got 10 years of free market access to Europe now. That changed the calculation for firms. Um, firms in Austria and Germany have been um, doing activities in the industrial zones in Turkey for the last 10 years or more, um, because Turkey's already had market access to Europe. Um, in January, Chancellor Merkel went to, to, to Ethiopia to see a new zone in Ethiopia, where again, again, lots of refugees in Ethiopia, and here's a, a, a ready-made possibility of jobs for refugees and jobs for Ethiopians. Um, and um, Chinese firms have already moved big time into Ethiopia, so European firms can do the same. Uh, and you, you talked about Turkey, but the industrial zones in Turkey has not ha don't have anything to do with refugees at the moment, right? They didn't, they, didn't. they can do. Mm. Um, they, uh, it's an easy step in Turkey, easy step. Um, and uh, uh, for example, in Britain, the British business 
minister, um, just put a load of chief executives on a plane, flew them to Jordan, and said, go and have a look. See if there's stuff you can do here. So one of our biggest supermarket chains discovered it could source quite a lot of stuff from firms in Jordan. And then the jobs that were generated by that sourcing were shared between refugees and Jordanians. So there's a lot we can do. Modern globalization um, can be used for, for the real public good in the most needy situations, as well as being a nightmare sometimes. Okay? Globalization is not all good news, it's not all bad news, but we can use it to our core purposes. And dealing, providing dignity to refugees is, is one of the things that it should really be harnessed uh, to, to work for. It's very interesting and uh, you're one of the most renowned, renowned economists when we think about why some countries are poor and why others are not. And uh, you think that with a lot of countries still struggling to develop, um, we can build, for example, an industrial zone in Jordania from scratch. We don't need to build it from scratch. There's, as I say, there's over 40 already there. Um, even if we have to build it from scratch, that's perfectly doable. Um, industrial zones are not expensive. We know how to do them. You know, China's been doing them for years and years. East Asia's been doing them for years and years. Africa's now doing them. So these things are not complicated. Um, they are coordination phenomena. Nobody wants to be the first in the zone. And that's where providing some incentives that coordinate private firms to move in. There's a good idea, right? Uh, let's pull up the flag, say, there's an emergency situation here. Um, responsible firms should be discussing what can they do here. As I say, get them off the idea that what they need to do is send a few thousand euros worth of blankets and get them onto the idea that actually They need to do their core expertise, their core business, in places they're not used to. And when you talked about 20 million refugees on the, on the planet. For how many of those 20 million could this be a, a solution? The, it's not always going to be using globalization, but it is always going to be generating jobs. Another way of conceptualizing um, camps is to say it shouldn't be camps. They're cities, they're places where economic activity happens. Um, and so instead of fussing about food and shelter, we should be thinking, you know, what is a temporary city? Well, a temporary city needs a power supply, yeah? it needs electricity. If it ain't got electricity, you can't produce very much, right? and so on and so forth. Yeah? Um, uh, it needs a legal environment which is in which you can establish a proper business. Um, it needs decent logistics that can bring stuff and take stuff away, you know? And so, we, by just thinking in this humanitarian silo, we've taken a very short-termist view. UNHCR funds itself with an annual budget, nothing further. Each year is a new invention, right? So, it's doomed to be unstrategic. So we need economic agencies that can think strategically long-term and have a budget that can work long-term. And see, right, if we're going to get uh, 
And typically, these 10 haven countries, they're hosts to various different inflows of refugees, different parts of the neighborhood collapse at different times, and so the refugees from different countries flock to the same haven country. And so, as it were, getting a temporary city that works for one population of refugees can when they work for another population of refugees. So the, the cities are not that temporary. Um, and so they'll need the infrastructure that makes them long-term, long-term economic opportunity centers. Um, what about the language barrier? People pick, if people want to work, they pick stuff up. You know? <laughs> um, the language barrier is much worse if people have just got no practical engagement with the place that they're in. If all they're getting is, you know what happens in the camps? They get tokens, which they can only spend in the official shop to buy food. They're housed for free. They've got no opportunity or incentive to integrate in any way into a normal functioning society where the sinews of the society are economic transactions actually discouraged from economic transactions. Uh, one, one thought that comes to my mind is when you create certain areas where, where only refugees live and, most, and where most of the people who work are refugees, which are probably the lowest class in society, can't, can't this become like kind of a, a ghetto? Yes, and that, that wouldn't be desirable. But we don't even have to think camps. Most refugees go to cities. Yeah? Um, and so the, business, the, 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 the economic opportunities don't have to be in zones and camps. They can be in cities. Yeah? We can still keep track of here are the jobs generated by this effort, by this international effort. And here's the, the ratio of, of new jobs for locals, new jobs for refugees. The objective is, is to restore autonomy for these people, to restore, that's how they get sort of meaning in their lives, the, the autonomy which gives them an independent life. Uh, most refugees are refugees for many years. And so the idea that life is on hold, being fed and sh housed for free, is just a, it's a model for destroying a sense of meaning in life, really. Um, that's what most struck me about the camps, really, was the sense of aimlessness. Life had lost purpose for people. What's the role of Europe in your model? Is it just to send money and companies that invest? Mainly. Hmm? Right? Um, first of all, we should recognize that every country on Earth that has any ability to do so has a duty of rescue towards refugees every country. That's what's in common. And then we should recognize that different countries have different strengths and weaknesses. Our strength compared with Jordan is that we've got money and we've got firms. Jordan's strength compared with us, if we're dealing with Syria, is that they speak Arabic and they're very close. And so the natural division of primary responsibilities is that 
Jordan should provide the physical haven, and we should provide the money and the jobs. Now, we shouldn't use that as a narrative for saying, thank God we've washed our hands of these people. And so we should also provide some asylum, just to establish that principle that this is not a strategy to avoid having people we don't want here, as it were. So I'm not part of that narrative at all. But um, everybody should do a bit of everything. Governor Jordan should provide a bit of money. But basically, we've got to combine that solidarity of purpose with comparative advantage of different abilities. We've got to use our heart, which is the solidarity of purpose. We've got to use our head, which is the differentiated capacities, differentiated abilities, the comparative advantage. This is much too serious a problem. It's the most serious problem on Earth, refugees, really, displacement behind it. And so we cannot afford indulgent nonsense, just all heart. We have got to combine the heart with the head. In what Europe did in response to the refugee crisis in Syria was we spent four years of heartless head, ignoring the problem, and then about six months of headless heart in panic mode, and then we flipped back to heartless head. We have got to combine the head and the heart. Now, thankfully, enough of the international community is getting this. That's why the World Bank's board, which is a global set of governments, has authorized the World Bank to get into refugees big time, set aside $2 billion of aid over the next three years. And so the international community has now got the message. Thank goodness. Uh, you're an economist. I, I'm pretty sure you already calculated how much money we would need to do this on a, on a bigger scale. Um, I think that, paradoxically, this is something that's going to be cheaper um, than being stupid. Um, because if you think about it, the model of refugees, 20 million refugees not working, being fed and housed for free year after year after year is not only insulting and stupid, it's expensive. In fact, it's wildly expensive. And that's why UNHCR is forever facing funding shortages. They've got a commitment model which they cannot finance. And the answer is not give them more money it's come up with a different approach. Uh, one question about the 20 million. I, I read that you calculated that f- like 90% are out of the UNCHR model, so they don't live in camps. Yeah. So, for example, I know refugees that lived in Turkey in a private house, they didn't yeah, get exactly. any, any public money. So not all the 20 million, most of them don't actually don't get Absolutely, don't but that's get not help. a good thing. So they don't cost us money. That's not a good thing, though. It just says 90% of the refugees 
get no international help at all. Huh? We shouldn't be proud of that. We should recognize we've really messed up. Huh? Because what are they doing? They're scratching a living at the bottom of the labor market illegally. They need to be legal, legally in work. They need to have a future. Huh? And uh, illegally subsisting at the very bottom of the labor market in places where they're not welcome. That's a misery. Right? We can do better than that. But better doesn't mean free food, free housing in one of these ghastly camps. Right? Um, uh, if you look at the, you know, the most recent camps that UNHCR opened, this was kind of 60 years of experience in perfection. And they're actually not perfection. They're a, a modernist vision of hell. <laughs> um, so the model is wrong. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's impolite to say so, but somebody's got to say it. But how, how, much, how much money would we need? Maybe it's a naive question, but did you, did you think about we need like 50 billion as a as a start to, to, to bring in companies to build infrastructure to, to get these industrial zones I think work? It's, I think it will be much cheaper than that, actually. I think you know, the, the, the World Bank started with two billion over three years. Let's see how that goes um, and learn from there. Um, so uh, I don't think either Alex or I are advocating um, you know, massive budget all at once. Um, uh, let's uh, experiment, uh, see what works in different places. Very clearly, um, what will work for refugees in Uganda will be very different from refugees in Jordan. Yeah. Um, and so we need, but, but in all these cases, it's perfectly possible to get them into work. Um, and, uh, uh, and so it's, en it's entirely feasible um, Getting people into work is much cheaper than not having people in work. That's for sure. Um, what, what makes me very curious is why you are so optimistic that this is going to work, because we don't really have any experiences yet with refugees from a different country going into uh, an industrial zone. I mean, this project in Jordan is, is working for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. But um, why are you so optimistic that this is the big model for, for our future? System? Because for 250 years, we've had the model of um, industrialization in which um, people with no education at all uh, went into factories and became massively more productive. Um, the first person to notice that was Adam Smith uh, 250 years ago in Scotland, right? the first factories. And he was astonished at how uh, peasants coming in from the farms, working in these factories, which by today's standards will be hideous, um, were transforming people's productivity and so people's incomes. Um, so actually, we've been doing this for 250 years. There's nothing weird about refugees. Refugees are just people who want to work. Um, and the fact that they've crossed a border from a neighboring country is usually not very significant at all. They've come with their families, they want to reestablish a life, 
That's why most of them are already in work. It's just they're doing it illegally and consequently pretty miserably. Um, so the idea that refugees are unemployable simply by virtue of being refugees, why on earth would that be the case? Um, let's make a thought experiment and go one step back. Uh, it's very hard to, to be specific on why some states collapse, I guess, but it's also uh, always economics plays a part and your own research suggests that it plays a big part. And for example, if, if young Syrian men would have had jobs uh, and the unemployment rate wouldn't be 40 or 50 percent for, for those young men, maybe there wouldn't be a collapse of the state. So we, when we talk about how, how we want to deal with refugees, we, we, we just talk about what happens after the accident already happened. Um, what about preventing the accident? Can't we, for example, instead of investing in industrial zones for refugees, invest in the industrialization of African or Arab countries? Yes, absolutely. That takes us to a, a different discussion. Um, and I've been very heavily involved in that, you know, partly for 40 years, um, but, um, but currently. Um, so at the moment I've got two big things. One is I've been working very closely with the German government, their president of the G20, and very sensibly the German government wanted to have an economic initiative on helping Africa and they asked me to help design it. And uh, what we came up with together was something called Compacts with Africa, which is about attracting private business, international business, into African governments, those African governments that want to attract private business. And it's entirely up to African governments whether they want that or not. Some do, some don't. The ones that do, we then invite them to come up with a program that they design which would show that the country is serious. And uh, so far, 15 African governments have said they'd like to do this. Seven have got far enough that they pitched their compacts. A compact just means setting out what the African government will do, um, which the, we did in Berlin last week. Seven African presidents, all the presidents of those seven countries came, all the finance ministers came. Um, I was asked to, con to moderate an event where there were 200 firms, European firms, not just European firms, and the seven finance ministers each pitching what they were doing to, to make their environment attractive. And then firms were standing up and saying, yeah, well, you know, if that's what you're doing, we're interested. Um, and so we're trying, through the compacts with Africa, to ignite a process that enables these countries to develop. No country develops except through private investment. Now, that's the process which really generates jobs. Um, in the past 20 years, we've overemphasized the social agenda and underestimated the importance of the jobs agenda, which is why so many states are fragile. Now, quite separately, um, we've got uh, uh, another initiative going on, which is the Commission on State Fragility, which is an academic-led uh, commission 
uh, anchored out of my own university, Oxford, and the London School of Economics, financed by a big grant from the British Academy, so it's completely independent of any government. Um, but we've got an international set of commissioners. The co-chair is uh, Donald Kabaruka, who for 10 years was president of the African Development Bank. And on that commission, what we're working out is what would be a better strategy for helping to reduce state fragility. Very clearly, the last 15, 20 years, what the international community has been doing has been a mistake, if we're polite, right? It hasn't worked. There's been quite big money devoted, and it hasn't worked. So what we've been doing has just been mistaken. And so the Commission's there to, to, to rethink that. We'll be reporting in January. Um, feel free to get back in touch with me in January and I'll, I'll download again, you know. Um, um, but certainly one of the elements we're thinking of is that uh, to break out of state fragility, you need decent, reputable firms to go to places they'd rather not go to. And if they went, they'd produce big public benefits. So probably there should be some public money to encourage that. So we should, for example, give BMW 20 million to go to uh, Uganda and build factories. And train labor. Because um, if BMW uh, goes to somewhere that's already established, it's already got a pool of trade la trained labor. If it goes to a place where it's not established, the, the automobile industry, then you've got setup costs of training labor. The first mover is at a disadvantage because if it all works and a second car company comes in, then it'll poach the workers trained by the first company. The first company knows that, it's not stupid. And so that public benefit really needs to be matched by public money. Is it, is it a disgrace if aid money is used to to help BMW or Volkswagen train labor in a very poor country to overcome the setup costs. Seems to me there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's, uh, and it is bringing more dignity than if we just uh, provide free food. <laughs> so you're arguing for a big shift in how we do uh, development policies? Yeah, and that's already being heard um, in January Again, the, um, the board of the World Bank Group, which is pretty well all the countries in the world, voted to allow $2.5 billion um, to be, of aid money to be used by IFC. IFC is the, the private sector arm of the World Bank Group. So that's the part of the bank the group which deals with firms. And that $2.5 billion can be used to get reputable companies to go to fragile states. Yeah? So very recently, the World Bank Group has had two big changes in policy, $2 billion at last to provide work for refugees in the haven countries, and $2.5 billion to get decent firms to come to countries that are struggling because they're fragile. These are both new uses of public money, and I think very good ones. So the world is learning. Right? 
The answer is not stop aid, it's spend aid sensibly. Right? It'd be great, incidentally, if Austria moved up to what Britain's done, the 0.7% commitment. What the German government is intending to do, 0.7%, um, you know, it's not just let's spend the money. You can spend the money very stupidly. But at least if you make the commitment to 0.7, you've got the money to spend, and then you have to do the serious thinking of how best can we spend it. How big an impact can, can this, if we, if, we, if we increase private investment massively, how big an impact can this have on Africa? I'm, I guess probably nobody knows Africa, the African economy better in the context of why, why it doesn't develop than you. I mean, you wrote the bottom billion where you wrote sure. exactly about, about that. How big an impact can it have? I think it can make a big impact. This is actually the story of what happened in China. Um, now China has been a staggering economic success. The fastest reduction in poverty we've ever seen in the world. Yeah. Million upon million of people, uh, big increases in their income, uh, and, uh, and what got that going uh, was actually international companies going to China and then starting to source things from local companies so that a whole supply chain moved and started to develop. Um, and then that whole set of practices, the, the global supply chain, spread across coastal China. Uh, with dramatic effects, very fast. Um, and so um, China is now um, facing its own demographic nightmare. It's running out of young people. I was in China a couple of years ago, brought in by the government, because they were it's the first government I've come across which actively wanted to destroy jobs. They wanted to get the job-intensive manufacturing out of China because they figured that was the only way they could release young labor for the go-go growth IT industries. And so they were looking to offshore the, the job-intensive manufacturing stuff. Um, and some of it they've offshored to Africa. Um, there's a very big new cluster developing in Ethiopia of Chinese firms which is pretty successful. Um, it's just starting to happen in Rwanda. Uh, I think we'll see a cluster of uh, manufacturing in Ghana developing. So this won't happen everywhere, but it will happen in pockets. And then you'll get exactly what happened in East Asia. If you're, you're too young to remember, but the, the, what happened in East I Asia about it. Okay, <laughs> was that a few countries got ahead. South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, they started to get ahead. If we go back to the 1960s, they're all dirt poor. By the 1980s, they were just growing like rockets. And that induced imitation, most spectacularly in China, um, but also across the board in East Asia. Um, 
And we'll see that same process happen in Africa. The countries that are pioneering these compacts will attract private investment. They will start to grow rapidly. Some are already doing that. Rwanda and Ethiopia growing 7 8% a year, doing just fine. Um, so you'll see those growing, and then the neighbors will imitate them. Last month, I was in Rwanda with the finance minister. The finance minister said, do you know, we've got 10 other African governments um, coming to the finance ministry to learn how to do it. He said, it's actually quite a problem because we can't get anything done. Um, so very sensibly, what the Rwandans have done there is sharp bunch. They've set it up as a business unit. So if you want to learn about how, you, how Rwanda does things, you can learn, but you have to pay for it. <laughs> but that's the spread, the, the importance there is the spread of ideas. These ideas will spread. And that's how the continent will lift up. It, in that sense, it will be the next Africa, the, sorry, the next China. That just, just, as, just as China did that, and if we go back to the 1970s, and I had this conversation with you and said, China's going to develop fast. Um, you would have thought me a complete romantic lunatic. Right? Uh, because the 1970s, China was basket case. Uh, and so um, not all Africa will succeed, but parts of Africa will. And that will ignite this process of imitation. How long that takes, who knows. So to summarize your point, you are, you are arguing for two big shifts. One in, a refu in the way we deal with refugees. We need to bring in private companies, uh, create jobs for them to work. The second is in development policy, which is already happening, or which has basically the same solution, bring in private companies and create jobs. The, the, there is only one path out of poverty, and that is to raise people's productivity. This most staggering feature about the countries of the bottom billion is that although people work hard, they are desperately unproductive. They're desperately unproductive because they work in ones. The most common size of firm in a city like Dar es Salaam, biggest city in Tanzania, is one person. No scale no specialization, doomed to poverty. Firms perform the miracle of making ordinary people much more productive, and they do it through scale and specialization. Small looks cozy and romantic. Small is usually pretty stupid. Scale and specialization may sound unromantic, but they are the only path we know for getting out of mass poverty. And in Africa, we're dealing with mass poverty. It can't be dealt with by redistributing from richer people to poorer people in the poorer countries. If you did that, you just have everybody underwater, everybody poor. And so the transformation in these poor countries has to be through productivity. Fortunately, that's pretty doable because the, gulf, the gap between where productivity is now and where productivity could be with even basic modern firms 
is dramatic. Let me give you an example. Ethiopia. If we compare a relatively big informal enterprise of four workers with the bottom edge of, uh, of modern firms, 50, 50 workers, right? doing the same activity in manufacturing, productivity per worker is 10 times higher in that firm of 50. Not 10%, 10 times. That's the transformation out of poverty that we need to see. And so we need more firms that can organize people into scale and specialization. They are desperately short in Africa. We've got them. We know how to do it. We can do it there. Good to hear that you're optimistic on that. Thank you for your time, Paul. Thanks very much. So, das war's für heute. Schön, dass du bis am Ende dabei warst. Wenn dir die Folge gefallen hat, dann freue ich mich, wenn du sie mit deinen Freunden teilst, also auf Facebook, auf Twitter oder wo auch immer. Ich freue mich auch darüber, wenn du den Podcast abonnierst oder mir einen Review auf iTunes schreibst. Das hilft mir, den Podcast bekannter zu machen. Immer dankbar bin ich auch über Tipps, was ich besser oder anders machen könnte oder über Feedback dazu, wen ich in der Zukunft zu einem Gespräch einladen soll. Ihr könnt mir einfach über Facebook oder Twitter schreiben, da müsst ihr nur meinen Namen eingeben oder ihr schickt mir ein E-Mail an andreas.sator.at. Bis zum nächsten Mal.